Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yes, uh, we are setting some kind of a record here. This may be the third episode in four weeks or something like that. Something like that, We've managed. Uh, And I'm so grateful to the dedication of the guys uh, on this podcast. And even on those weeks when not everybody can show up, we get a quorum. And uh, as long as Mark's here to record, we can make this thing happen. So uh, I'm Nate Larkin. I'm here with uh, Mark Whitlock. Yo, <laughs> Samson Central here in uh, Middle Tennessee, and joining us as always from the left coast, the co-host with the most, Aaron Porter. How you doing, man? I'm great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Shortest answer in history. That's right, 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 right. <laughs> well, I'm feeling so. Great how was I... how was your birthday weekend, dude? Isn't you that had something? a birthday yeah. weekend. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, it's... and you. Wait, wait, no. Here's here's my first real question. Although I do want to know about fun, but you made a commitment to turn your laptop off. And for people who don't know, Nate works all the time. <laughs> and so when if anybody takes a road trip with him, they will find him with his laptop in the back seat working on engineering reports. Yeah. So you committed to closing the laptop only checking in to pay your employees on Monday, which I appreciate. And uh, so how did that go? What was it like? Did you it, go through withdrawals? Did you keep your amazing. commitment? I, I have not gone in the last 18 years. I've never gone four days without uh, being um, on my laptop and working. I mean, even when I was traveling in China and Africa, I would always find a place to get online and work a couple hours a day. To put that away was... I, it was difficult and wonderful, and the world didn't end. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you know, the part of this is just my own pride, as I think that that every nobody can do my job as well as I can. That certainly, the business will fail if I'm gone for four days. And uh, yeah, so, how did how, did did it help that? It was your boy who was stepping into your shoes. Yeah, because you got you get to have pride with that. Right? I do, I do. And my my son Daniel, who stepped in and played me for four days, did a great job. kept up with kept the workflow up, and um, and turns out he 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 does a very fine job. So I was pushed into delegation. So, so uh, what what was Allie's response? Did you see an, uh, an effect on her? Uh, Allie, uh, we had a great time together, just the four of us. And, uh, she spent more time on her. Uh, what we've now noticed is that uh, kind of in self-defense, she's gone to her laptop and her phone <laughs> and, uh, me not being on mine uh, uh, revealed how much time she spends on hers. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we still, we hit, we, we went away, we went out of town, went down to Chattanooga, which is a great little, uh, I mean, it's a great town, just a terrific town, a great place to spend a few days, just the four of us. And I came back very relaxed and rejuvenated and don't feel a day over 70. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you don't look a day over 50. So there you go. Yeah. You guys are kind. Well, well, how about you, Mark? What's going on in the uh, Whitlock world? To be honest with you, I, I'm having a crisis of of masculinity. Um, I feel uh, 
I feel stumped in work. Um, this, this calendar year I have had, um, I've gotten to the one yard line on five different jobs that I've been going for. I own my own business, but my business is not performing at the level I want it to. And, uh, so I've been looking for a job job again, a career job. I've been out of the marketplace, uh, for over four years and it's hard to get back in. Mm -hmm. And I feel really discouraged that, uh, I can't make that happen. And, uh, that has, even though we knew these issues walking into my, my remarriage, um, uh, it has caused issues of strife. And since money next to my fear is my, is my biggest issue in my life, uh, it, it causes stress from time to time. So, uh, it's fascinating. It's interesting. And I, I, um, there are days that I struggle to feel like the man that I am. And, uh, um, so I, I've been, I've been wrestling with that. And yet in the middle of that, uh, I invoiced a project this week that I've been working on for a while and it felt great to do that. And I look at it and go, well, maybe my, my personal business has air and, Mm -hmm. and maybe I'm supposed to stay in this. I mean, this is what God has for me. I'm supposed to buckle down and, and do more sales for myself and, and find more projects. And, uh, and yet I, the, then the crisis of manhood rears its ugly head again, because I feel like I'm not being courageous enough to make a decision and to pour, uh, my, my professional effort in, in that direction. And then I, I get into analysis paralysis and, mm-hmm. and I go, I go on my own merry-go-round again. So, uh, that's what I'm, I'm feeling and, uh, and thinking about today. Thank you, man, for an wow. absolutely yeah. flat-out honest answer. Yeah. I love that. Let me tell you about a fly in the ointment on our weekend away, Ellie Oh, and I. yeah? Yeah. Uh, just the day before we left town, my daughter sent me a message, and she said, you and mom have to read this book. Uh, she says it's fantastic. And then I, I should have known, I should have listened to this part of the message. The message was, she said, I cried through the whole second half. I read it in two sittings and cried through part two. You and mom should listen to it. So I got it on an audio and we started playing it in the car as we drove to Chattanooga. We listened to it on day one. We listened to it on day two. The book is called Love Warrior. It was one of Oprah's books of the month. It's a memoir of a woman who uh, yeah, grew up in a fairly uh, normal, uh, loving home but always had issues of identity and uh, developed a persona. I can sure identify with that. Took a trip through active addiction, alcoholism. Um, Got married. uh, And this woman writes with blistering honesty about marriage, Uh. about what goes on at the breakfast table and what goes on in the bedroom and how it feels emotionally. Uh, and it was just hitting deep places for me, but even more than for me, for Al, because it was giving words to feelings that she's, and really gave me insight into, uh, kind of the powerlessness that some women feel and, uh, the gymnastics, the emotional gymnastics they go through to try to please a man. Mm. Stuff that most men are just entirely uh, oblivious to. And uh, so when we would go to dinner, neither one of us could stop thinking about the book. 
And then it started to go in part two, it started to go into some really dark places. And when he was introducing her, her husband was introducing the, the author to hardcore pornography. <sighs> we had to shut it down. Because by by this point, Allie and I were both just so emotionally invested in the book. It was so deep. But she was just ripping the covers off our life. Even though oh. this is ancient history for us, and I never brought porn into our home, into our bedroom. Never tried to interest Allie in it. I know there are many couples who have gone there. Uh, a way to try to integrate lust and love. A way to bring some life into a dying marriage. It's always a stupid idea. Uh, but still... Um, Allie and I, she had a restless uh, couple nights sleep. And on the third day, Allie said, we can't listen to that book. Not now. It's just, <laughs> let's go back to um, Happy Land. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing, even though, you know, I've been 18 years in recovery. We've had so much healing. Allie, and Allie just said, look, it's not like I haven't forgiven you. I've forgiven you. But there's... Uh, apparently still some healing that needs to be done and yeah what a, so uh we have a we have an unfinished book now Allie says you know i'm not sure when i'm going to be ready to listen to the rest of it i need some time maybe a month maybe a year i don't know oof yeah yeah, yeah can we can we pause on Allie's thought for a second cuz yeah. i think that's such an important thing we as Christians are so confused about forgiveness and what it means to forgive others because we've heard people say for so long, well, God forgives and he forgets. As far as the East is from the West, so far has he removed our sins from us. And that's what we're supposed to do. Oh, yeah. So we'll pause here. Those are two descriptions of God. God also created the earth and everything in it with his words. You can't pull that off either. Uh, so <laughs> right. there's, there's this weird thing that we expect and what I have experienced in my life and the lives of people I've walked through this with is there are, there are two phases of forgiveness and they're both real. The first is simply when I say to God, I forgive this person, which means I'm making a deal with you when I have feelings, because I'm not going to forget I'm not God and I don't have that. And even saying God has whatever, that's a whole theological thing. But I'm not going to forget this will come up again. I will be hurt. I might be angry. I might be sad. But when these feelings come up, I will not put it on them. I won't make it their responsibility. I will take it to you. It will be an act of my will. This is the first step of forgiveness. Yeah. And I, and I agree and admit that this will continue to hurt. Don't be ridiculous. But forgiveness is happening. But in those moments that I dump that back on the other person, instead of taking it to God, I know, wait, my commitment was to start walking in this with my Heavenly Father. The second part, I think, is very much out of my hands, which is when Jesus talks about forgiveness, he talks in terms of the person who knows they've been forgiven much will be able to forgive much. So it's totally tied so my own understanding of my gospel need for Jesus. And so if I'm the servant that gets forgiven a whole bunch, but yeah, I don't really feel like it was that big a deal. 
then I'm going to go be unforgiving. Yeah. But the one who knows, oh, man, I might not have done what my spouse did, but I'm desperately in need of you, Jesus. The more that becomes a reality, the less I am able to feel angry at another person for how they've hurt me. Yeah. And that just, that happens over time. But again, I don't forget. And sometimes when, you know, you listen to a book, you watch a movie and it comes up again, those feelings come with it. And I go back to step one and say, I don't, I, I'm not going to make this their problem, which is what Ali did in saying, Hey, this, I'm having these feelings, but I'm not putting it on you. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the beautiful journey of forgiveness. And we shouldn't feel like we are failing as Christians or failing at forgiveness when we have those feelings. So I just wanted to put that out there. Oh, that's good. That's good. Say, guys, when we come back, I want to I want to read an article, a blog was brought to my attention by Newton here uh, a little while ago. I think uh, our listeners are going to enjoy it, and it might lead us to some more productive conversation. We'll be back in just a minute here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to this next portion of today's thrilling episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Newton is not with us today, but uh, he sent a link to an article that we read last night. And uh, Nate, you you were touched by it. I was. I was. And I think it would be helpful to our listeners as well. So with your permission, guys, I'm going to go ahead and read this blog post from Vicki Tidwell Palmer. You can find her blog at vickitidwellpalmer.com. She's uh, the author of a book called Moving Beyond Betrayal, The Five-Step Boundary Solution for Partners of Sex Addicts. Uh, And this is what she wrote uh, back on the 18th of July. Working with partners and sex addicts over the past nine years, I've been told and witnessed many examples of successful and less than successful dialogues between addicts and partners. Successful couples conversations usually have the following characteristics. Listening with curiosity and openness. Minimal defensiveness. A willingness to attempt to understand the other person's perspective, also known as empathy. And the ability to admit being wrong or engaging behaviors that harm the relationship. Accountability. Well, unproductive conversations are the opposite where one or both members of the couple are unable to listen or to take in the reality of the other person, are defensive or engage in rationalization or minimization, are self-centered or unwilling to try to understand the other, 
and lack accountability or the willingness to admit that they made a mistake, broke a boundary, or acted in a harmful way. I've identified five do's and don'ts that sex addicts can learn and put into practice immediately to improve communication and connection with their partner. Addicts, for each do, keep in mind that it won't be effective or even believable if you simply repeat the do's on this list and they aren't true for you. Practice these tips only if you can do so from a place of authenticity and honesty. Otherwise, you will just be repeating old, inauthentic, and deceptive behavior. I love that. Yeah, pause pause here, Nate. Yeah. Uh, this, this is from a woman that deals in and with sex addiction. Yeah. But these principles apply to everyone, <laughs> even if you aren't in any active addiction uh, or if your choice of self-soothing is something else. Okay, continue. Very good. This, In other words, these are true even if you're married to Aaron Porter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Number one, do say, I understand why you don't trust me. Addicts sometimes have difficulty with this one. Typically, it's shame that's in your way, rather than truly not understanding why your partner doesn't trust you. But if you'd been lied to and deceived for months, years, or even decades, you know you'd struggle to trust the person who deceived you until they prove through trust-building behaviors that they're trustworthy. As difficult as it may be to tell your partner that you understand why she doesn't trust you, it will go a long way toward healing your relationship. Number two, do say, what can I do to repair what I've done? This may sound simple, but it's one of the most powerful questions you can ask your partner. This question, question can be used for something as simple as being late, or forgetting to do something you said you'd do, or for a more serious matter such as having a slip or a relapse. You may be reluctant to ask your partner what you can do to repair because you're worried about what he or she would ask for. However, a request is not the same as a demand. You have a right to agree to the request or to say no or negotiate an agreement you're comfortable with. You might even be surprised at how simple and easy the request might be. Number three, do lead with agreement. Leading with agreement is a powerful communication tool everyone should master. Leading with agreement is the ability to sort through everything that someone says to you, identify what you agree with about what they've said, and then start with what you agree with. For example, let's say you came home 30 minutes late without letting your partner know you'd be late. And when you got home, your partner told you how upset she is that you didn't call and that every time this happens, she worries that you're acting out or that you're with a former affair partner, etc., etc. Leading with agreement would sound something like this. I'm so sorry. You're right. I was late and I didn't let you know that I would be late. Is there anything I can do to make it up to you? This is a very effective statement and question that goes well beyond leading with agreement since it includes accountability and an offer to repair. The opposite of leading with agreement in defensiveness or outright ignoring what the other person has said would sound something like this. 
Well, I was home on time yesterday. But you were late yesterday picking up the kids for school. Or, why are you always on my case? Notice that defensive statements like these change the subject, don't address the immediate issue, and create more disconnection and upset. All right. We're down to number four out of five. Number four. Don't say, I've told you everything. Addicts never, and I mean never say, please, never say, I've told you everything. Even if you've gone through formal therapeutic disclosure, taken a polygraph or more than one polygraph, I repeat, never, never, ever say, I've told you everything. The simple truth is that your partner doesn't know everything about your acting out behavior. In fact, you probably don't remember everything about your acting out history. Sex addicts have been known to find stashes of money, for example, in a hidden place in their home many years into their recovery and sobriety. They simply forgot they had it. And then there are the granular details of some of your past activities that you haven't and shouldn't disclose. As I write that last sentence, I can literally hear partners asking, Why not? Don't I have a right to know everything he or she has done? Yes, you have a right to know the behaviors, the frequency of the behaviors, the last time your partner engaged in the behavior or had contact with an affair partner, how much money he spent, many other facts about his acting out behaviors. However, there are some details that should not be disclosed because they serve no useful purpose and ultimately create more unnecessary pain and anxiety for partners. Examples of these types of details are uh, most thoughts and fantasies, uh, graphic details of sexual encounters, what affair partners said, and even the identity of affair partners when the betrayed partner hasn't and won't ever have contact with him or her. And finally, don't ask or expect your partner to congratulate you on your sobriety or your recovery activities. This can be a tough pill for addicts to swallow. Change is challenging, and fighting a long-standing pattern of compulsive or addictive behavior is extremely difficult. As you're working diligently on your recovery and rebuilding trust, you'd probably like your partner's support and encouragement, maybe even enthusiasm. But looking to your partner to meet these needs is unrealistic and, frankly, unfair. Partners are sometimes highly offended when the addict expects them to acknowledge and thank them for something, fidelity, that is basic, fundamental, and expected in a long-term committed relationship. Partners have a similar experience in the early stages of discovery. The person they most need and want to turn to for comfort and support is you. Unfortunately, at that time, the addict isn't the person who can best support her. She must reach out to others to get her needs met. Addicts need a solid system of support from 12-step communities, or peer support groups, or Samson Society. <laughs> I added uh, that. Clergy, therapists, mentors, and others who can give them the unconditional encouragement and validation they need. Partners, are there do's and don'ts that you'd like to add to this list? You can go ahead, she says, and leave a comment here. 
and I'd encourage you to do so. She's got, uh, there's a lot of wisdom this woman has to share with us. And I'll have a link to this uh, blog post on our, our website, piratemonkpodcast.com. Let's look for that in the show notes. Okay. So Nate, let's, let's break this down. Number one, number one, uh, do read it again. Before we go there, can I talk about one of the things that she says is her prerequisite? About, okay. Yeah. Um, about defensiveness. Um, this has been a, a big deal for me. Uh-huh. Uh, I get defensive. I want to be right. One of the things that I've struggled with most is I want to be, I want to be right in every situation. I want to be the one who's right. Yeah. And I have gotten defensive over the smallest things and have gone that direction. And I just want to, I want to echo what she said here. Um, I, as someone who has been defensive, it doesn't work. Yeah. It derails the train and takes it you know, at a hundred miles an hour or 200 miles an hour a long way in, in an opposite direction and causes more harm than good. Um, and what I've had to learn is that the things that I'm saying, the things that I'm feeling, the things that I've done well, the things that I've done right, the things that need to be discussed, when I do so in a defensive posture with defensive body language and mm-hmm. a defensive voice and defensive volume, and I get, it becomes all about that, those things never get heard. Right. There's, there, and she, she talks here about rationalization and minimization. Yeah, I do that too, but... But this far in, now I'm just defensive because I want to look at all the things that I am right on. I have the right facts, the right motives, et cetera. Those have no place until after the repair has been done. Right. And then to bring them up calmly and point out those things if, if that's important. I wish it weren't that important for me. Yeah. Uh, but it is. All right. But- all right. Well, that's, that is so true. We shouldn't, but I'm curious like I'm a defensive person. I think everybody's defensive, but I think there's very different reasons. So are I'm you referring curious. to me? <laughs> <laughs> I've never been defensive. What are you talking about? <laughs> Everybody except Nate has been defensive. <laughs> uh, but okay, so so I'm thinking as you're talking, Mark. When when I'm defensive, I really, if I humble myself and allow myself to be wrong, even in part, even if I believe in part I was right, but I really listened to another person without being defensive. What do I have to lose? Right. And I, I think for me, and I think it's totally different for you. For me, I feel like I'm going to lose control of the whole conversation. If I allow one piece of, yeah, well, I was wrong there. And I do that with humility. All of a sudden I will lose the power of being able to reintroduce any other information in which I'm right. The other person is just going to now get to have total power over me. I think that's mostly behind my strategic defensiveness. So what's, why, why are you, when you find yourself in that spot where your brain clicks over to protect yourself, be defensive, what, what do you hope to gain or what are you afraid to lose in that moment? Well, here's some, Dramatic transparency for you guys. Um, for me, wait, I'm not. I'm not seeing this in person. Is he acting this out, Nate? You can't do drama on radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I trace it back to um, my childhood with my mom. Uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of things that um, she was just dead wrong about. 
And no matter what I did, no matter what evidence I showed, no matter um, how many witnesses I had stand in my defense, no matter what, um, I was wrong. And uh, you get to a dramatic moment at my at my high school graduation where she's ticked off that um, there was a typo. There wasn't an asterisk by my name on the on the uh, program at high school graduation, mm-hmm. uh, signifying that I was an honor student. Yeah. Hey, it's on my diploma for crying out loud. It's on my transcript for crying out loud. Why does it? I, I you know why does it matter that this asterisk is there? Why are we making a big deal out of it? And there were there were four other things that I could I could bore you guys with that happened on graduation day. So here it is: graduation from high school. We have guests in from out of town, and all my mom can talk about are these five things that didn't happen on graduation day, mm-hmm. and none of them mattered. Yeah. And four of the five, yes, the asterisk was not on the piece of paper. The other four things were not true. Yeah. And so the entire evening of my graduation was all about this. And me trying to, and this is, again, this is just a snapshot, me trying to prove yeah. that the other four things were true and that there was no reason mom should be upset about those four things. And the fifth thing, we should just let it go because yeah. it, it didn't matter to me. That, that's just a snapshot of hundreds of situations like that that come from my childhood. So as I walk into adulthood, as I walk into being an employee, yeah. I, mean, I can remember being at 22 years old, being at Focus on the Family and responding to my supervisor the same way that I'd responded to my mom years yeah. ago. Because he was, he was, I, I was being called on the carpet because I wasn't carrying my weight. Yeah. I wasn't doing my part. And yet I had the evidence that no of the three people that, that worked on the same task that I did, yeah. I'd actually done 70% of the work for the month of February. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't just pulled a third. I'd done more than two-thirds of the work. Yeah. And yeah. here's the evidence, and I'm feeling myself do that. And yet that my boss's perception was right. a valid perception. He, he wasn't there. But if I'd presented those facts calmly, yeah. if I'd done that, things would have been different. And so I've been stuck in the same cycle. I can track all the way back to then. And I just... I have this desire that the things I am a smart, capable person. Yeah. And I I'm, I'm a hard worker. And if you tell me that I'm not smart, I'm not capable or I'm not working hard, I'm going to come at you with both barrels. Yeah. And I can't hear. I'm deaf to hear the things that I need to improve on, the things that I need to work on uh, because of this history. And so I'm getting there, but I am still so defensive, especially when it comes to intelligence, ability, yeah, and and work ethic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so get under that. that do you, do, yeah, I think seriously. I think you guys are peas in a pod over there in your studio. That's why <laughs> I've been isolated here at the cemetery in California. Um, I, I, there's a lot of things that can be under that for a lot of people, and one can be the look. I'm doing these things, and I really need you to reflect back. I, I see that. You did well. And there is the hurt, shame that then turns to anger with the, this is unfair and unjust. I showed you these things and you are still telling me I'm not good enough. Is, is that, so I'm just thinking of different kinds of people that are listening and what's going on with them. And I think there's a lot of ways that what's in us gets totally exacerbated as children when our parents don't uh, love us based on who God made us to be. Yeah. 
and they keep poking at that shame thing and and it goes to the no matter what you're doing i'm not going to believe it's good enough i'm always going to find this problem and it creates those habits of defensiveness which like you so rightly said never work out like somehow this is my tool to deal with this moment i'll be defensive for me i'll stay in control well guess what by the end of the conversation the conversation is completely out of control so what i hope to get out of it never happens or I'll be able to justify myself, and I won't. I won't feel that you don't approve of me. Maybe you'll approve of me if I can be defensive, which never works out because then it's just an argument, and you're wrong for that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so all of that to say this: she is dead on the money. And if you're like me or Aaron or no, not Nate's not. No, not me. Not me. Uh, if defensive- I used to be defensive. <laughs> defensiveness it will derail the conversation and the train. And if you can hold those cards, calm down and discuss the, discuss those things later. If they're genuine, you will have much greater connection uh, with the person who's having a tough conversation with you. You know, the author also gives an, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I will own, you know, I am still uh, defensive, but not nearly as defensive as I was 18 years ago. And uh, and I can thank recovery for that. Allie says when people ask her how did they how did they how did she uh, start to trust me again? When did she begin? And she says a couple of things. I trust him because he doesn't trust himself. But she would say the biggest sign was he stopped being defensive. I'd point out a, a defect, something he'd done wrong, and he didn't immediately retaliate, counterattack, t- change the subject, turn it on me, and. I, and what was very helpful to me, this was uh, so striking to me to sit in a room with other men and hear them talk without shame and without um, a, a, a load of self-condemnation, talk frankly about their defects and failures. That always seemed to be one of the major themes of the conversation. And to see that there is a, it, um, a keeping up perfection is an enormous amount of work. Uh, if I have to defend against every charge, if I can't be guilty of anything, if I've got to be perfect, man, that's hard work. And, and it makes me very difficult to be around. But if I, if I no longer have to be perfect, if I can be broken, if I can really be screwed up and it's still okay, if the gospel actually gets better, if grace <laughs> abounds, if the greater my sin, the greater my salvation, the greater my joy, uh, then I can start to cop to things that I wasn't able to cop to before. And it's a, it's a, it's a lot less stress living that way. Um. So I do know that I can make people feel uncomfortable. There'll probably be some listeners to this podcast who will get uncomfortable at um, the level at which we're able to talk frankly about our failures in the present tense. But I want to tell you, this is the way to live, and it makes us easier to live with. And you know what? That's so gospelicious because the foundation is my perfection— my holiness, my rightness, my righteousness is 100% b- 
because Jesus was holy and righteous and right. Right. And all of that is intact in me because of him. So that's done. Put that aside. Now, the rest is me working out my salvation, which I know comes in this broken vessel, in this clay pot. Yeah. And man, that it takes the stress off, not just because I say, okay, I don't need to be perfect, but because I can rightly say, in view of the gospel, I am loved by my heavenly Father because he sees me as righteous. I've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. Now let's work out the details today. Yeah. She said something else in her preamble that I guess before we get to breaking down these five points, I think worth mentioning, which was these aren't just tools to use. If we don't believe them, if we don't do them honestly, then we're really just manipulating our spouse yes. by using some good tools. Like if, if Hitler used these tools, he'd have been a better Hitler. And yeah. that wouldn't be good for anyone. So there's probably a process by... <laughs> I remember pissing off Allie just by using a uh, a te- te- technique I'd learned in therapy. The uh, the <laughs> feedback thing by saying, what I hear you saying is, uh-huh. oh man, she about punched me in the mouth one day <laughs> when, you know, because it came across really just as technique. Yeah. What I hear you saying is yeah. I had to, I had to finally banish that phrase from my conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's probably a process for every person to say, okay, I get why this statement is true. I need to work on believing it before I employ it. Yeah. 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 All right. So number one. So what I hear you saying, Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) Beep. (laughs) I edited myself. (laughs) Point number one is... All right, so uh, I don't know. We'll even have time to go through all five of these. Uh, but here's here's oh, that got, that first humble. We got, we got time. Yeah, that first humble, empathetic statement to say to your partner, "I understand why you don't trust me." Um, it's amazing how I was able to talk Allie back into engaging with me during twenty years of active addiction, with penitence with false repentance, with promises, uh, with tears. I could uh, get her to feel sorry for me. I could get her to feel guilty. I could get her to believe that what had happened hadn't happened. I could divert her. Um, I had so many ways of keeping her on the string. Uh, And... It was helpful to her and to me, and I did this with some coaching, uh, to say to her, um, you're under no obligation to stay married to me. I completely understand why uh, you would not want to, why you would want to leave. Uh, I don't want you to leave. I hope you don't, but I won't blame you for a minute if you make that decision. Uh, We don't ever have to have sex again. Uh, I completely understand why the, even the thought could be repugnant to you. I have no sexual expectations of you. If you want to stay married to me and we're celibate for the, the rest of our natural lives, I'll find a way to deal with that. They're telling me that sex is not a need. It's a want. 
and I can live a full and contented life without sex. Uh, so I'm willing to lay that down. Um, I kind of, I'm, I mostly believe this when I said it. Uh, I was kind of, but taking kind of taking the pressure off and then understanding that I was going to have to earn this woman's trust and that I was going to have to proceed on the assumption that she did not trust me and would not trust me. Uh, it, it turned out, I mean, that, that was kind of the, that was that kind of that, 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 that thin th- thread thrown across the gorge that, that we could run other cables across and eventually build something that we could both travel on. It was important to do that. And it was important to remind myself that, uh, she would be crazy to trust me early on. Is it safe to say, uh, you know, when it comes to trust, I think when I was younger, I would have felt like it is my right that my wife trusts me. Yeah. You have to trust me. That's my right. Yeah. If she, if she had said, you know, I don't know if I trust you. There were certain things that I did early in marriage that I do far less now. Um, ways that I would argue where I'd just be intense, I'd be loud, things that really hurt her, that um, I would have felt like she still needed to trust me, but because I was hurting her in those conversations, uh, her trust for me wasn't my right. Mm -hmm. It was my honor to possess. It was mine to lose. It was mine to rebuild and regain. But boy, back then I wouldn't have believed it. It would have just been like this. Uh, you have to give me trust. Yeah. And so maybe this is exactly one of those places that before those words ever leave any of our mouths, it's something that we have to go on the journey first and get to the empathetic place and say, you know what? That's true. Why would my spouse trust me? And this can go as well for the spouse of an addict. Yeah who, frankly, their reactions to things have just kept pushing and hurting the addict and not being helpful. Mm -hmm. And for them to say, wow, I recognize that. I'm not a safe person for my husband or wife to confess to. Okay, I believe that. Let me start back at ground zero. I know there's no reason for you to trust me right now or in the past, but I think that's a big internal journey first, you know, even that you described before you could say it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is all, uh, uh, all of this works in us humility. Uh, You know, in the uh, 12 and 12, Bill W. from AA said that humility underlies all the steps. Uh, And he wrote, I've mentioned this before, an entire chapter on humility. Step seven chapter in the 12 and 12 that starts on page 70 and ends on page 77. Um, and there is such uh, spiritual, there's so many spiritual dividends that come from moving away from pride and toward humility. And, and we, we um, you know, that, that broken and pharisaical and self-righteous part of us, that part of us that resists and miss, misses the gospel, uh, that's always trying to establish its own merit, that part of us resists humility. 
and uh, resists uh, saying the kind of things that are necessary in order to rebuild a relationship. But if we're willing to, if we're willing to go there, we'll gain much more than a marriage. We may not even gain the marriage. Let's make sure and put uh, uh, state this caveat. There's no guarantee that even if you do these things, your marriage will survive. This gives you the best shot, but it's no guarantee. But even if you lose your marriage, you will gain something beautiful and lasting of spiritual significance if you'll take the journey of humility. And you know, the fun thing about humility is it's not one of the fruit of the Spirit. Mm. So, you know, I hear Christians uh, often say things like, I need to work on my love. I need to work on being more peaceful, those things, which those are a product of the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. When I manufacture them, I'm I'm making plastic fruit. And plastic fruit go in a bowl <laughs> and they're just meant to be seen <laughs> by others. That's good. Oh. Yeah. But, but real fruit is meant to be eaten and to nourish you. Yeah. But humility is one of the very few things that God calls us to where he says, This is your work. Humble yourself. Oh wow. It is one of the few things that repeatedly I'm told to work on. Yes. And it's not just a product of, you know, I need to surrender and abide and have the spirit grow this in me. He's saying, nope, I want you to grow this. Um, that might be overstated, but I that is a good point, it's... my brother. And I do know this. Um, humility is inevitable. In the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will all find our place in the end. Humility is inevitable. Humiliation is optional. Uh. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so we kind of get this invitation from Jesus. You know, you can fall on the rock or the rock can fall on you. But one way or another, you're going to be humble. So humble right, yourself is a good word of advice, actually, more than admonition. There it is. Yeah. Number two, hit us. Oh, number two is... Uh, Ask your spouse, uh, what can I do to repair what I've done? And, uh, you know, the short answer is uh, the one that I would get from Allie early on was really there's nothing you can do to repair the, that big, massive betrayal. But I have found that there are things that I can do uh, to rebuild that wall one brick at a time. And that means to pay attention to things that she does and doesn't like. Um, I used to be just, um, I, I didn't even stop to consider what Allie wanted most of the time. I was that self-centered. And, uh, you know, the center has changed for us. That's important. This is a, this is a hard one because honestly, your spouse might say something as an answer to this that you don't like. Yeah. So if you've been dealing uh, with uh, struggling with alcohol. So you've made sure you've had an extra two hours after work that you've gone out uh, drinking before you go home. And your wife says, well, I'd like you to be home right after work and present with our family. Yeah. That, that can be hard to do if your habits, you're going to be working against your habits. So yeah. man, if you, if you ask this question, you better be ready for the answer to not be delightful and easy. Hmm. Mm, good point. Good point. Something here. The I, other thing is, if 
Oh, go. Well, let me just say to you, Nate, uh, your point, if she says there's nothing you can do, then it's probably good to verbalize, okay, I understand that. Here's what I'm going to be doing until you figure out things that you'd like me to do. Yes, that's good. The, this go was ahead, the big thing for me in this article mm-hmm. because I always thought I had to have the answer. Right. I had to know exactly what I needed to do to repair. Right. And being able being given the freedom to ask this question, uh, I'll report in in a future time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like the fact that asking is not an anthema, that I don't have to know the answer. That's that's encouraging to me. Okay. Good. Good point. It's awesome. Number three. Oh, uh, yeah. This is a great piece of advice. Uh, when uh, Lead with agreement. So uh, your spouse downloads uh, a grievance or an observation or a statement that feels like an indictment. Uh, You have uh, a natural tendency uh, to go into defensive mode. Uh, You see all kinds of things in uh, the indictment that's been delivered to you that is, uh, it's, it's incomplete, it's inaccurate. There's so much to attack. But the smart thing to do is to pick out that thing you agree with and uh, begin there. Uh, and this 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 goes directly to the point, Mark, that you articulated early on. You know, that goes, there, there is this fear. If I agree with anything, then I'm going to fold. The troops are going to come pouring through that breach in the wall and, and I've lost the city, right? It's over. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't work that way, really. That really, it, that's this, the beginning of a, of a bridge of communication. This is an amazing piece of marriage advice that comes straight from God. It is, it goes to the root of our misunderstanding of the word confession, because confession makes most people think either of a Catholic, a box in a Catholic church where you sit behind a screen mm-hmm. admitting everything, or confession is from your favorite, uh, law and order where they they get a confession out of somebody Mm -hmm. and that is that is not the the word if you confess your sins is homo legeo homo lagos the same words confession means to say the same thing which is what she's talking about yeah and if we look from the beginning jesus or god comes to adam and eve and what does he ask them did you eat of the tree that i told you not to eat from which is apparently, I mean, it seems on the surface to be a ridiculous question from an, uh, an omniscient God to ask. Right. What? That's r- ridiculous. And then we see the same thing with Cain. When he kills Abel, he says, where's your brother? What have you done? Both times, ridiculous questions are God leading people towards, I'm going to say the same thing as you right now. Yeah. Both times they make excuses, they get defensive. So, I mean, this this article is highlighting stuff that's happened since the beginning of the world. Right. <laughs> but here's, here's the deal. Here's the deal in marriage. The words, I'm sorry, don't mean shit. And see, that's usually not my word on this program, but I'm taking it today. Okay, good. Because too often, I feel like I, look, I said I was sorry, and that's supposed to mean something. And every... Married person knows what it feels like when our spouse apologizes to us, but they do not agree 
with us. Uh-huh. But if I can say to my wife, you know what? I said this in this way and it made you feel that way. And I would have felt like that if I were you. Yeah. That, that was a huge shift in my mind because I thought I never would have felt that. That's not what I meant. In fact, you know what? Just banish. If you're married, banish that phrase from your vocabulary. That's not what I meant is a stupid thing to say. That comes later. The fact is you did or said something that created an emotional reaction. And even if that's not what you meant, it happened. Yeah. And even if their reaction is not what yours was, I can understand in my wife if I stop and say, oh, okay, that's not what I meant her to feel. But if I were her, if I were not me, if I were her, yeah, that makes total sense. Of course she felt like that. Yeah. And so then I can honestly say, okay, I said this and I made you feel that way. That wasn't my intention, but I understand that's exactly how I would have felt if I were you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Now, that's a confession because I'm agreeing with her. And what happens with confession is that relational healing. That's when we go to First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I was already forgiven because of Jesus, but I didn't necessarily experience relational healing between me and God until I confessed because to yeah. agree to say the same thing as heals those relational wounds between me and God, between me and my wife. Sure. And her example, read her example again. It was perfect with how to do that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, so yeah, so hers is, I'm so sorry. You're right. There you go. I was late or whatever. I didn't let you know that I would be late. So you validate the reality of the other person and then move on to say, is there anything I can do to make it up to you? Right. So it's that simple to speak the words that are the words they're thinking and feeling. And now I'm saying the same thing as them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and you might want to avoid the phrase, the what I'm hearing you say is. <laughs> 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 oh, man. It, are there not so many, like, typical words in a marriage that completely undermine yeah. uh, healing and trust? It's ridiculous, the stuff that comes out of our mouths. It is. Yeah. All right. All right. Number four. Number four. Next piece of advice. Don't say... I've told you everything. Man, that's just, that's, uh, that's setting a landmine that you will step on down the road. Yeah. Preach. Yeah. And uh, you don't want to tell your spouse everything. Your spouse may at moments think, think that he or she can find peace by knowing all the details, but there's no peace to be found there. And guys, don't think that you might be different than... Everyone else, you're hearing this going, well, no, 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 I I need to say everything because you don't. You need Listen. to say everything, but you don't need to say everything to your spouse. Okay. Yes. That's what I meant. Yeah. Good point. Okay. There, there's a gray area here, and I need you guys to help unpack this. Yeah. Because what what is right for one person is wrong for another person. So there is no answer to what you should or shouldn't tell. It, do, do people just need to make sure to have a counselor or someone? 
because I know, say somebody confesses to an affair, yeah. one of the first things the spouse is going to want is who and where and all the details that they later might regret getting. So when do you know? Because in that moment when you confess to something, the other person feels like they have all the rights and power, yeah. but it might not be used well for their own sake. So how, how does anyone know? Yeah, and it's so difficult when it's just the two of you, especially early on uh, when disclosure is just beginning. And uh, there is a temptation uh, just to give all kinds of uh, random, minute detail uh, as a way to kind of clear the air. What that can do, however, is just provide the images and the emotions for films, mental films that will torture the spouse for the rest of his or her life. Um, I'm grateful that, that Allie, um, I mean, there, she wanted to know the basics, but she has never, uh, but she, she kind of protected herself from, uh, wanting to know all the details about my many sexual encounters with other women. Uh, because that would have just been setting tons and tons of triggers for her. And, uh, she has, she has, she has enough tenderness as it is after 18 years without having all that extra stuff. And, um, yeah. So, so what, what is, what is the counsel here? The counsel is to get counsel and get advice. Yeah. Do just, don't do disclosure along through it. Yeah. Do disclosure with help from a skilled person and um, and somebody that both partners trust uh, so that, uh, you know, the spouse can hear from an objective party. I understand how you want to know that information. It wouldn't be good for you to have that level of detail. I'm going to say that you probably shouldn't get it. Let's, let's see if you can find... Uh, here's the crucial details that you need to know. Here's the other stuff that you're just handing the enemy an arsenal. You're just loading up the ammunition wagon for him. Third-party credibility is huge. If a counselor says or somebody else says, let's pause on getting that information, I don't think that's going to be helpful for you. The spouse, if they say that, is going to be heard as saying, I still want to hide things. Right, from right, you. exactly. Yeah. So it, it is so necessary that it's like, no, no, this isn't about hiding stuff from you. It's about protecting your heart. Yeah. And giving a foundation for healing with the two of you. Yes. So if you are the one right now listening to this who's been hurt, I think just don't trust your first instincts. Yes. With what you think you need or want, put it on pause. You won't die. You might feel like you're dying, but you, it, it won't kill you to. Take that journey slowly. Mm. Good, good advice. All right, number five. We're down to number five. You said there wouldn't be enough time, and we're only at minute 58, brother. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, we're down to this last piece of advice. We, this was almost the theme of our uh, our retreat at Bear Trap Ranch, the After the Miracle retreat. Don't ask or expect your partner to congratulate you on your sobriety or your recovery activities. We're not going to get a round of applause and a parade for doing what we should have been doing all along. And uh, I, I know that this trips up some guys 
uh, and girls in recovery who work very, very hard and who would like some acknowledgement from the partner that they actually have been putting in the effort and making the, the sacrifice. And over time, if they're not careful, uh, they can allow some resentment to build because they're not being recognized. There isn't any kind of an award ceremony. They're not getting an attaboy or even an acknowledgement that they're doing something special. Uh, but still, that is an unrealistic expectation. I'll tell you what, go to a 12-step meeting where you can get a round of applause for picking up your next chip. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's that's exactly right. Be around the people that will celebrate it because it is celebration worthy. Yes. But it's not necessary. I mean, everyone should go back and listen to David Hampton's uh, episode, probably, what, seven or eight episodes ago? Yeah. Because he tells the story of his first year of sobriety and going to his wife and being so excited, expecting something from her. And I believe her response was, well, I'm sure glad you, you are. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure right. glad you did. Yeah, yeah. Make and it what's a year. for dinner? Yeah. And that was so anticlimactic. And I, when he told that story, I felt for him. And yet it's <laughs> like, you know, okay. <laughs> go, go to your meeting. Get your round of applause. Go to your brothers who will slap you on the back and uh, give you a soda pop. That's it. All right. Well, we've done awesome. it, guys. I think we've burned an hour, a little more than an hour. Uh, but it's been worthwhile for me. And if, if it's if it's half as worthwhile for our listeners as it has been for me, then this is not an hour wasted. It has not been. Uh, <laughs> so we'd love to hear from you. Feel free. You know what? Uh, seriously, I don't know if people think when we say this, we're not talking to them, but some other listener. If you have a topic or a question that you want talked about, we would love to hear it. We'd love to engage it. Um, so send your questions, send your thoughts, send a topic idea, and uh, or just let us know what you're thinking. Uh, you know, we love to be told that uh, this is the most important hour of your week, and we're awesome. Oh, we just love those. That just That's right. So right. much to That's us. Right. So uh, <laughs> send us a note. Drop us a line at give it to us, Mark. Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail.com. That's Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail.com. You can also go to PirateMonkPodcast.com, leave a comment. You can also leave a voicemail for us on a private confidential voicemail line. You can see the information there at the bottom of the, uh, of, of the post um, or on our Facebook page. You can, next time you're on Facebook, search for Pirate Monk Radio and join the community there and uh, start a conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we hate this being a dialogue, so join in, join the conversation. All right. Yeah, well, and you know what? Go to the go go to the Facebook page too, so you can see our pictures, so that when we meet you in person, <laughs> I don't have to hear, man, you don't look at all like I thought you would, and there's a disappointed look in your eyes. That's hard. So you know what? Love to meet you in the future. Uh, go look at the picture first, will you? Hey, you know what? By the way, I'm going to have dinner tonight with my Silas, Dave Hampton. He, he and I share a birthday. Our birthday oh, really? is exactly the same. Yeah. How about that? I've got a few years on him, but we're born on the same day. And uh, one of the things on the on the uh, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about tonight over dinner is, hey, when are we going to when are we going to do another, <laughs> when are we going to do another retreat? So uh, another chance. Uh, that, oh, I had such a good time getting the podcast together with podcast the, the crew together with the listeners. We got to do that again before another year goes by. All right. Until next week, I'm Nate. I'm Mark. I'm Aaron. And we're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast.
Junior, baby, preaching recovery. Yo, yo, yo.